Blog outside. It's 16 degrees and freezing, but it's beautiful. This show is extremely special. We're talking about law enforcement officers and why they are special and why we need them. Um, I got an email the other day that somebody, one of the candidates was running for office in a specific place, and the person said, I want to run this place without law enforcement, and I said, you have to be kidding me. That's insane. So we've got Bruce Kaufman. David Putnam, and we're supposed to have Lance LaRusso. I don't know what happened, but good morning. I'm so glad you're here. This is exciting. Thank you for having good morning, us. Good morning, Brad. Yeah, good morning. Absolutely. So, Bruce, would you tell everybody about you so that everybody understands how what, you, what your role was as a, as a detective and why it's so important for people to understand that we need law enforcement? Sure. I, I uh, was a detective sergeant uh, for the Portland Police Department in Maine. And um, I retired in 2012 after 27 plus years. And when I left the job, I was in charge of the homicide and violent crime uh, detectives. I'd say that's a fairly important uh, thing to to have in a police department. But that's just me. (laughs) I agree with you. (laughs) And, David, what about you? I um, worked 28 years in Southern California law enforcement. Detective, uh, violent crimes, narcotics, um, street-level majors, uh, did two tours on SWAT, worked mostly in violent crimes, chasing murder suspects, and then I worked internal affairs, criminal intelligence, and after after I turned 50, I went to Hawaii, and I worked as a special agent for the Attorney General's office. That's exciting. That is exciting. So when you... They have to deal that, with different. We both made it to 28 years. That was it. <laughs> that must be the deadline, I'm, right? I can't yeah. believe I made it a lot in education. <laughs> ah, here he is. Right? Finally, yeah, yes. Here we go. Lance, is that you? Yeah. Hi. Sorry about the delay. I was having trouble getting in, but I am here. Sorry about any uh, delay I caused. I got hey, nervous. Lance. Okay. So tell everybody about you and about your past experience. So the people that are listening in the lines are lighting up here today. I don't know why. I'm getting popular. Um, tell everybody about your, your experience as a detective. Uh, so Lance LaRusso, I worked uh, as a police officer with the Cobb County Police Department. Uh, started, uh, was issued my horse and my flintlock back in uh, 1988. Um, worked in uh, crime prevention. Worked as a uh, hostage negotiator. Did a lot of training. Did, was a street officer transferred to the Solicitor General's office as a fraud investigator and uh, went to graduate school and law school at night while I was doing that 
and I'm still affiliated with some law enforcement agencies doing uh, doing the good work, but also representing a lot of law enforcement officers. I've represented over 100 officers in officer-involved shootings and uh, handle a lot of those cases, mm-hmm. plus some tractor-trailer wrecks and all sorts of other things. Oh, well, you really do a lot, all three of you. So what happens when you have to deal with someone, any type of case? How do people respond to you? When you when you need to deal with them, especially when it's you know something that's negative, how do you handle that? Because that's hard. Uh, so far as right now, uh, we have a couple of cases that are in the national news. Uh, two of the uh-huh. officers I represent, we just got them their jobs back. They were involved in the taser incident in Atlanta. Uh, we have mixed reactions. We have, uh, I think, the overwhelming amount of population in the United States overwhelmingly supports law enforcement. So we get the private thumbs up, we get the emails of congratulations, and we get the thank yous. And then there is a vocal group uh, that uh, can't stand law enforcement, uh, and they are vocal in the other way. But, you know, as most of your uh, guests understand and other, your, other, um, your other guests on the phone will understand, they still call 911 for a reason. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag, but we're just honored to represent the people who are putting their lives in jeopardy every day for strangers. I agree with you. But, David well, or, or Bruce, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think that's true, and I I think uh, what he was saying is right. You know, a lot of times the the thanks uh, comes privately. I think that's kind of always been the way it is. Uh, it's not necessarily a popular uh, thing if you know if the police are involved in your life in a negative way, uh, right or wrong. Uh, people don't like to be told what to do. So, a lot of times when there is uh, gratitude expressed, it's done in a private way. And I think with the uh, like you say, the vocal uh, the vocal. Uh, naysayers now, very vocal, um, kind of force people even further into the shadows uh, that do appreciate what we do. But I think they're also the majority. I think there's no question about that. Um, I, I, I started in, in uh, the mid-'70s, and I've seen the pendulum swing back and forth, and right mm-hmm. now it's just swung the wrong way. And it'll swing back. Mm-hmm. People, Right now, violent crime's up 30%, and they'll get the idea, and, and the pendulum will swing back toward law enforcement eventually. Well, I, I agree with you, because when my mom was so sick for 10 years, I called 911 a lot, you know, seriously, you know, to get the EMTs and everybody there to help her, and I could never be, believe how wonderful these people were um, and how I'm understanding the fact that she had Alzheimer's and that, I mean, if they came in five minutes, the police, it was amazing. So... Police cases are handled by different units. Um, who handles things like criminal investigations or burglaries? Was thought how did, how how was it domestic violence or burglary? What who handles different cases? Do you handle all of them, or the different units that handle each one? That's one of my questions. Usually, the detective bureaus are broken up into crimes against persons and crimes against property. At least it was in California. And so uh, that's how it's designated. And there's different supervisors in each one, the experts in each uh, division in California. That's that's how Portland did it as well. Um, I think that has changed now. I think they're they're trying to do the uh, the one size fits all approach um, with the, mm. you know the understanding that every detective brings something to the game. But generally speaking, the property crimes people specialized in that, like burglaries and that type of thing. And violent crime was you know anything from domestic assault up up to it, including homicide. 
Yeah, and I think that uh, you know you, the, everybody hit the nail on the head, and it's just a policy decision. And uh, you know, I'll kind of loop that back into current events right now. But you know, you mm-hmm. have. Um, Ten years ago, 15 years ago, you didn't have the level of specialization within some of those units. So a hit-and-run investigator 15 years ago would not have had near the amount mm-hmm. of uh, training they would have. The same for crimes against children detectives, uh, forensic, forensic interview techniques. The average homicide detective now probably knows more science than uh, crime lab people did in the 50s. Um, and that's where this uh, idea is so pernicious about defunding the police, because the only two mm. flexible parts of a police budget are training and travel, which is usually for training. So what is going to happen if you cut the police budgets is you're going to cut the amount of training that homicide investigators get and crime scene processors get and uh, crimes against children um, units get. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, you know, near and dear to all of our hearts. I, I, you know, I don't want to speak on behalf of our, my, my, you know, co-guests here, but that's why it's so dangerous because those, those policy decisions mm-hmm. were made for a reason, uh, and even the mental health units that have sprung up because the agency's trying to serve a very diverse public. That's scary. I also wonder when these people complain if they really if they're really thinking about what they're complaining about, or if they're just complaining just for the sake of hearing themselves complain. Well, some of that's groupthink. I think you know. I mean, it's the hot button topic, and at the moment, if it's if it's cool to to hate the police in a vocal way, I think that's what a lot of people do. You know, I think that tends to be that. You know, you you mentioned earlier, David mentioned earlier about the pendulum swinging, and I think that's that's pretty Mm -hmm. much how it goes. If Things are going bad in society, and the government isn't thought of highly at the moment. Um, the police usually end up being the ones that enforce uh, the government uh, laws, and so it's really easy to have us be the scapegoat when things aren't going well, like it was in the 60s, the 70s. And I think what gets lost is all the good work that's been done to try and uh, make the police departments more sensitive to the needs of the community. But that's not the stuff you see every night on the news. So if it's only negative, no. then that's what people opinion is, you know. Does anybody ever come when you come and actually say, I mean, I did, actually, when my car was stolen and we had a problem. I actually called and thanked them for helping. Does anybody call and thank you guys or thank you after you leave to, to say, I appreciate your help? I mean, seriously. As a, as a watch commander, we would take calls. I would take calls, and then we would fill out what's called an attaboy slip, and uh, it would go in the officer's uh, jacket. So, yeah, it did happen quite often. That, that, that's yeah, and, well, I'll even go a step further. I mean, and kudos to you for being the watch commander who actually filled out those kudos because people brag about cops all the time. And, and you know, these we're talking about fiction books, but the, one of the nonfiction books I wrote is Blue News, telling law enforcement to tell their own story, to brag about those attaboys. I'll go a step further. I guarantee um, my guests on here with with me, of, of all, and law enforcement officers, have if they're in it long enough, have had somebody thanking them for arresting them. Um, hey, my life was going off the rail. You saved me from killing my kids in a car wreck when you arrested me for DUI. Or, you know, when Whoa. you made that arrest in domestic violence, you kept my wife and I from getting a divorce, which would have been terrible. So I, I think we've all been fortunate enough. And I'll tell you, that rocks you back, but it means a lot. I remember those conversations 20 years later. 
Yeah, no, that that's that's amazing. absolutely right. Those are the ones that mean the most to us, I think, too. You know, this it's not a shallow, hey, thanks for your service thing. It's, hey, by the way, you changed my life and put me back on the right road. Those are very gratifying moments. Yeah, they, they are, seriously. But what happens when it goes the other way? What happens when after you know you did the right thing, somebody gets really rude and nasty? How do you deal with that without losing your temper? That, that's hard, I imagine. How do you restrain yourself from saying I'm going to you know, knock your lights out because you know you can't? Hmm. Well, David's the shift commander. He can go with this. <laughs> that's what um, we're getting paid for, and I just consider it part of the job. You know, I've been spit on and uh, hit and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. That It's just a matter of uh, taking it as part of it, taking it in stride. You can't let it. You can't yeah. let it emotionally get to you. That is that is hard because you know, you know, when you hear on is, the news, go on, go well, on. Well, part of it is, you know, and this is what is just so misunderstood about law enforcement. You know, I have met some of the most introspective, some of the most caring and passionate people behind a badge ever in my life. I've met more pastors and more youth coaches um, that are wearing badges than in any other any other walk of life. And a lot of times we recognize when we're in that mode that we are seeing people at their absolute worst time in, in that they will ever remember. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the, the time their neighbor called because they were having a fight with their, with their wife and screaming and hollering, the time that their kid got arrested for theft and they're lashing out at the police officer. And officers, you know, they have to keep order, but they understand that people are just in a very bad time. And and most of it you can roll off. As long as they don't put their hands on you, it's pretty easy to let it roll off. You know, sometimes it happens when you're having a bad day too. Um, But I think that's why, you know, most of the time people just misunderstand how officers are trained to deal with that. And part part of it is the the media that's inflaming the situation because – they're not. They're not telling both sides of the story. In San Diego County Sheriff's Department, they had two million contacts per year. The the, the use of force um, investigations are just a small fraction of that. I mean, a, a small percentage of. A, and then, when the pepper spray came in, they tracked it very closely, and uses of force dropped seventy percent because of the use of force continuum. So you, instead of going hands-on, you pepper spray them, and it diffused the situation. Mm-hmm. Now, some of these uh, city councils are dropping pepper spray because they, they don't want uh, the cops using it on the protesters, which is going to inflame mm-hmm. and increase the uses of force, which uh, is kind of uh, a bad situation. There must be difficult when people are protesting. That must be hard when people are protesting and they're not even focused on what they're doing. They're just ready to hurt and kill anybody. And police officers get hurt and they're trying to get hurt. Yeah, protesters are easy. It's rioters that are a problem. Well, all they're doing, those rioters and those protesters, are are, uh, promoting the virus if they would ever bother to think about that, which, which of course, they don't. Do you ever have to deal with schools? I mean, I had to deal with, I was the dean, and two kids got in trouble. I don't know why I had a good deal with it over the weekend. And the principal was afraid of the parents, seriously. So I had to deal with the police and this boy that hurt another boy, and I dealt with it with no problem. But do you ever have to come into the schools to deal with the, with the kids? In California, well, there's, I'd have, I'd have. Um, 
an officer assigned to each school, and he, he's actually on site. Not us. Yeah, we had to deal I, with I, them pretty often. I was in the schools pretty often, and a lot of times there was just a, a, a difference in understanding. Um, they have an ability to teach responsibility um, through a different mechanism than law enforcement, and they have an opportunity to affect um, a restoration mm-hmm. of order differently than law enforcement. I was in the schools a lot when I was a uh, public relations officer, and there was a fight out in the hallway one time. I was having a cup of coffee in the break room, and one of the uh, principals came. One of the assistant principals came in and said, "There's a fight out in the hallway." I said, "If I go out with it, I deal with it as a cop. Do you want me to go out in the hallway? Because I have two sets of handcuffs." And they stopped and they said, "We'll handle it. Enjoy your coffee." So, you know, there's a recognition that, mm-hmm. and this is what's been lost. Schools are supposed to teach personal responsibility and are supposed to teach government accountability. Uh-huh through citizens, and part of the mm-hmm. reason I think we're in some of the troubles we're in, especially in the schools, is because that's not being taught, and then they call the police when things have gone off the rails, and then they're upset about the way they handle it. I do, and now we know who the cop was. It was me as a dean. She would say to me, there's a fight yeah. in the hall. You get to break it up. I'm five feet tall. I weigh 110 pounds, <laughs> but one of the teachers was a uh, black belt in karate. She taught me my moves and I actually stopped the fights. I mean, a couple of, nobody, no, no child ever tried to hurt me. No parent, nothing. They never did. They would just stop. But you know, sometimes you'd stop, break up a fight and you break an arm, hurt something. And yeah, it it gets kind of, gets kind of dangerous. She didn't, she was afraid of the parents too. And when the parents came in and when they were violent and they were, she would send me out to handle it, which I did. And I would say, well, that's not my job. I'm only the dean. I'm supposed to handle the, the discipline problems and straighten out the kids. That's scary. So what does the public need to know that law enforcement officers are human and are allowed to deal with fear? Because every time you get a specific call, do you ever wonder if it's dangerous or you have to you know, protect yourself in a specific way? I don't know a single cop who hadn't been scared. If you know, it's kind of like uh, an old joke out of Mash. If you're not scared, there's something wrong with you. Uh, you know, you get scared and you do your job. You rely on your training, but you rely on your heart to realize that somebody needs your help. And you know, if you want the best expression of that, um, there were. If you had stopped everybody on 9/11 outside of the, ter- uh, the trade center, um, asking them. Um, if they were heroes wearing either a police uniform or a firefighter uniform, they all would have told you they weren't heroes and shut up. But when everybody else was running away from those buildings, they were running in. And uh, to me, that's probably the best exemplification of what public safety does. No, I agree with that. I lost yeah, a student in 9-11. That's all. Go on, Bruce. No, that's that's a great point that he just made. I mean, and, and that is part of the whole pendulum swinging. It's amazing, you know. If you even if you think back to last March, all the first responders were being heralded and praised for their for their work and being on the front line for the COVID fight. And then by April, uh, you know, we were <laughs> the whipping boy. We've been the whipping boy ever since. So, you know, nine eleven was the same thing. It takes one more negative thing to happen, and somebody to get a megaphone, and then suddenly public perception is swayed again as if we're all the same type of person as, as an officer mm-hmm. who may have done something, you know. 
That's I don't good. think we do that with other professions, but I may be wrong. I can't think of any other profession that has that same kind of fickle reaction. No, I well, think you're right, and I think the reason is too. that they don't that law enforcement doesn't tell their own story, you know, and as a basic yeah. principle, if you don't tell your story, someone else will and, and I you know, like I said, I don't want to speak for the other guests, but I'm sure part of telling your story of uh being a law enforcement officer and telling the truth about law enforcement is writing your fiction books. I mean, for me, as I've said, if you're looking for the alcoholic uh homicide detective who hates everybody and has twelve ex wives this is not the book for you. If you want to know how <laughs> cops really work and if you want to understand that cops have feelings and they get involved in cases and they work until they're exhausted and the fact that they're high-fiving when they lock a murderer up, yeah, this is the book for you. Do you ever have to work with other agencies like FBI or CIA or do inter-agencies inter- uh, where they have to take over your case or you're working with them on a case? That must be interesting. Now, we worked very closely with the FBI. I was on an FBI and violent crimes team, but CIA uh, is for foreign soil. It doesn't take, they're not allowed to work on U.S. soil, so I never had any interaction with them. I've met a few of them during uh, different incidents, but uh, they're not supposed to be working in the U.S. Yeah, really? and so far as the, uh, yeah, and so far as the controversy you see all the time on the mm-hmm. media and in movies and stuff with uh, federal agencies and locals. You know, there's turf wars that happen between all agencies, even state, city, and local. But for the vast majority of time, you know, they meet the mission and they work together. Uh, You know, that's just what they do. As a matter of fact, your, your listeners may or may not be aware of a concept called a TFO, a task force officer. And that task force officer is a local state or city officer who is um, tasked out or assigned to a federal agency to assist with the mission, whether the mission is fugitive apprehension or gangs or um, child pornography, sex trafficking, things like that. So law enforcement agencies work together a whole lot more than is portrayed in the, in the, in the news and, and uh, also on TV. Yeah, I did that for four years with the feds as well for counterterrorism work. And, and we had just about every agency you can imagine uh, that took part in what we were working on. And we worked very do well have, together. Do you ever have a problem within the precinct where one, one officer is trying to up another one or something happens where somebody you know just doesn't show up or does something wrong or a partner that you know, doesn't pull their weight? And I'm, I just watch too much television. That's what IA is for, Dave, right? Right, and and anytime you have humans involved, there's going to be a a, a varying degree of of criminality. The the um, what happened in the Rampart LAPD, they investigated. I think it was the Christopher Commission, a Warren Commission. I can't I get them mixed up, supposed to mixed up, but the investigation proved that the uh, hiring practices were were eased because of the number of applicants they got. They decided to add 900 uh, personnel. And they couldn't. It takes in California. It takes 1,200 applicants to get one person through the academy. So when you hire 900 people, um, it, they have to go nationwide to get the people. And they kept lowering the standards for oh, the officers to. And mm-hmm. all those people that were causing the problems they found had come under. Um, they were hired under lesser standards to get those applicants. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing, kind of getting back to the current. People are talking about lowering standards. 
you know, I've told people if they don't like law enforcement right now, they're going to hate the second string when we've lowered those standards to a point where we're hiring people we never would have hired 10 years ago. Right. That's exactly yeah, that's true. Right. Yeah, there were six, six tests, I mean, and, and people people washed out of those tests very easily. And then when I went to the academy, um, we lost 50% of the personnel in the academy. So I, I, people think that it's it's easy to get into. It's It's not. Well, how many that times you, do, do people get into it and then just and then decide to drop out of it after a while? Well, that's I mean, true. You know, we used to kid around when we hired people in the academy that we had to teach them how to defend themselves and protect a third party because they'd never been in a physical confrontation. Now we've got people yeah. whose only confrontation in their lives is getting a text in all capital letters, and they're upset for three days about it. So, <laughs> you know, the the <laughs> level of people that are applying now it's oh, it's Lord. a different world. I'm beginning to wonder if it's not a different world in education, too. It was was much more stringent back then. You had to actually pass a test, a couple of them, in order to get into education. I don't think you need to take the test anymore. I think you just need to finish the credits. As a matter of fact, when I went for my principal and superintendent's license, I called the board and they just said, you know, send us $15 and we'll send you the the, the, uh, license. I go, like, you've got to be kidding me. So they're lowering standards every single way. That's really scary. So what, what, is, what is the most challenging thing about an investigation, about being a police officer, a detective? What is the most difficult thing to do? Do you ever feel like, what, are you, like you wanted to get up one morning and say, I'm not coming because I don't feel like it? No, you know, that, that's the other part of it that it's hard to tell. But, you know, when you're doing the right thing and you're out there protecting yeah. people, like when I was doing fraud investigations, we had a woman who uh, contacted our office. She paid $12,000 to have a roof redone on a single family house. It was three bedroom, two bath. I mean, she just got ripped off. You know, when you can Mm -hmm. wake up in the morning and take care of strangers and protect them, that's what drives Mm -hmm. these folks. The hardest part sometimes is just Mm -hmm. you're, you have standards and you have rules. And this is one of the things that I'm sure everybody here fights about, you know, I watch TV when I teach academy classes. I tell them to watch uh, news shows, I watch cop shows. They'll see three illegal searches in one episode. Mm-hmm. You've got to follow the rules, and, you know, you've yeah. got to wait until you have sufficient probable cause before you mm-hmm. make that arrest. Because if you jump the gun because of the fruits of the poisonous tree doctrine, you may be trashing any opportunity to get a conviction down the line. So there's a lot of pressure on folks to get it right the first time, especially with homicide investigations. I would imagine. That's scary. So what kind of technology is different now than 25 years ago that you have, that that, uh, police officers have now that they didn't have back then? I mean, I remember, and this is, I shouldn't tell this on the air, but I will, it's funny. Um, I went out on a blind date and I didn't, I just, something, my friend introduced me to somebody and just didn't trust him. And he got a flat tire, the guy, and there was a police car coming, and I asked to be put in the back and and taken away from my date because I was afraid. I had no idea. <laughs> I did, honest to God, I never <laughs> laugh or cry. I mean, the, the cop looked at me. I said, you can put me in the back because there's just something about him. My friend introduced me to him, and there's just something I can't put my finger on. And they actually ran me through the, the thing. They said, you're an educator. You should know better. I said, tell it to my friend. I was hysterical <laughs> laughing. Yeah, for real. And my and my brother called me to scream at me and say, "What what is wrong with you?" I said, "So and so introduced me to him, but they they you know questioned him or whatever, but they actually let him go. I thought he had contraband in the car. Could barely fit, and I'm little. I said, "Oh my God!" So that 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 that's scary, sometimes. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> Did you ever have to give anybody a ticket for anything or a summons or something and then gave you a hard time? All the time. I mean, when you work in, yeah. when you work in patrol, that, that's just part yeah. of the job. Every contact the cop has, most 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 every contact, 90% are negative contacts. That's so sad. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Most of them were very happy. <laughs> well, what happened? Seriously, there, I I know of a case. I won't tell you who. I, I watch too much television. Seriously, um, what happens when people get tickets and the car just stays there, or they don't pay them? There's a way to track it down, isn't there? In Maine, you, your license, license goes under suspension if you don't pay the uh, if you don't pay the fine on the ticket. And if it's a criminal uh, summons, then you you get uh, they issue a warrant for your arrest. That's if they could find the person. Well, you know, it, when we you got you went back to uh, people making complaints, you know, we actually handled a case a few years ago yeah. where somebody uh, alleged that an officer fondled her breasts on a traffic stop, and we looked on the video, oh, and none of it was true. And that's a sexual uh, battery in Georgia with a lifetime um, sexual uh, predator reporting requirement. So we sued her um, and got judgments against her in court. That, that is, that is really good. scary. Did they consider a criminal case on that or no? You know, they looked at it. Um, I I think they were just satisfied with the fact that we got a judgment against her, against her son and her husband for trying to interfere with the judgment, and uh, we still have a lien against her house. So I think they figured she's been punished enough. But I don't think she's going to do that yep. again. Do they have body cameras to prove against that, that that can't happen? Do the police have that? Or the detectives have it so they could actually, you know, video what's happening when they when they make an arrest or they stop somebody? A lot of them do. The problem with the body cameras, uh, you know, you've got budgets that sometimes, you know, body cameras and body armor cost about the same, but I think one is a non-option. It should be provided. Mm -hmm. Body armor should be issued to everybody. The problem is body cameras yeah. will never give you the officer's point of view. They see differently in low light and no light. They don't move with the officer's eyes, and they also use a uh, a, a concave lens they use a fisheye lens to gather more info so they distort distance but most importantly cameras don't suffer from attentional blindness which is when an officer focuses on a threat to the exclusion of everything else so what you see a lot of times is well how come the officer couldn't see xyz i could see it very clearly but when mm -hmm. you're under stress you have a tunnel vision effect you may mm -hmm. not see what the camera's picking up that's scary yeah that's right on that's right on. That's a good explanation for that. That definitely isn't what what you're experiencing is totally different in person than what a camera would ever pick up. Like uh, like you just said, you know, we may be looking in one direction and the camera's looking the way we're facing, but not our actual head. Um, and you can't tell what you know the tunnel vision thing that's going on. The the pulse is racing. Uh, there may be more than one threat, and the camera may only pick up on one mm. thing. Um, it's it's not an accurate representation of everything that occurs. Do you find that you're working better in pairs, or do you work? Did you work by your by yourself? Don't they have most people working together with somebody else now? Depends on the agency. In uh, San Bernardino County, they, they couldn't afford it, and they had one-man cars. So sometimes it's the largest county in the United States uh, geographically. So sometimes your backup was uh, two hours away. Yeah. Well, Maine up here, like I know well. that the, the, if they have there's something that happens, we get about 10 police cars getting there. I mean, seriously. 
where I am in Westchester, there's a, there's always somebody with somebody. There's no, I don't think they're ever alone. I mean, they may be in their car alone, but they're not alone. And what happens with witnesses? How reliable are they? Are they just you know, siding with the other person? Or are they witnesses to all see things differently? So how do you deal with that? Well, I guess nobody else is talking. I've, I've found that witnesses are uh, across the board. You don't you don't know exactly if they're going to be uh, good on the stand or if they make a valid ID. Um, and prosecutors tend to rely on physical evidence more than they do mm-hmm. witness evidence because humans are involved again and um, everybody makes mistakes. Yeah, and the bottom line is witness witness testimony. Uh, you know, you've got just as many studies saying it's garbage as opposed to studies saying it's awesome. The bottom line, and people complain about it, it's what we have. You know, the problem is the witness testimony is subject to um, everything from the effects of light to the effects of bias, just to the also to the effects of just fear. So, you know, when I was a cop, if I had a shooting or I had a stabbing or I had a car wreck that happened, if I can find somebody like a, a nurse or a cop mm-hmm. or a firefighter or a military service member who has been under stress before and observed and made judgment calls, that's gold. Um, because the average person, when they get scared to death, um, they – they don't record a lot of information, or it takes them a while, 24 to 48 hours, a couple of sleep cycles, to kind of process what they really saw. And and what happens also is if you don't immediately uh, separate the witnesses, there's a group think will start, and then they start talking amongst each other, and the, the whole incident can get distorted. They did a, they would do a test when I was in the academy. We sit in a classroom when we, when we first started, and somebody would come in, um, and shoot the instructor with a, a gun with blanks, and then he would leave, and then everybody would write down what they saw, and nobody in the room seemed to have the same story. Well, then that, that's right. like asking from God. That's amazing because two people don't see the same thing at the same time. So how do you? This is the other question. Um, I interviewed Iris Johansson the other day, and she has a character, Kenra Michaels, that could sort of tell when people are lying or whatever. So we were talking about that. How do you know when somebody's not telling you the truth? How can you tell when you when you when you arrest somebody or you see a witness or somebody or somebody says, "Well, I didn't do it." Well, you know damn well they did do it. Um, so how do you know when they're lying without saying to them, "You're lying." Well, I know you are. You have to prove it. You have to prove it. That's I know. The, that's the key to that. You know, I mean, that's what every investigation is about: is uh, is being able to verify and or disprove what you're being told. Um, whether whether the person's doing it intentionally or or uh, misread, you know, a situation or whatever it is, you have to find the facts to back up or disprove what it is they're saying. And what 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 you do with in interrogation techniques is you lock them into a story, and and get it documented, and then you break down their story like like Bruce said with with evidence. But the law allows to allows us to use uh, ruse. Uh, or subterfuge to get that statement, and you're only to me. I was only uh, restricted by my own creativity on how to get them to talk. Yeah, and you know the other yeah. thing that people discount too is there is some science to it. Um, you know, there's been studies about people who have gone through law enforcement officers who have gone through extensive training in a concept called kinesic mm-hmm. interview techniques. 
Um, and people mm-hmm. call it different things depending on whether they, they look at it. Some of the research goes back to the early 1960s. A guy named Albert Morabian in nonverbal communication studies. But there are ways to pick up deception. Now, deception is a function of people being uncomfortable with what they're saying. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean they're lying. So, for instance, you have somebody who's a victim of a crime. They work at a, uh, I was going to say a, a convenience store, but in, in the house we call them stop and robs because that's what people do to them. So let's say you're a convenience store clerk and somebody walks in and just punches you square between the running lights. And when the officer gets there, you start telling a story of how you fought really hard to protect yourself. And then when we look at the video, we see that they didn't. Well, they're not really lying. They're just trying to cover. So the skillful investigator has to separate the, uh, the embarrassment from the out-and-out lie. And the real challenge is when you look at videos, and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, documentaries out now where you, the average person can see someone like Ted Bundy uh, being interviewed, um, someone uh, like other serial killers being interviewed, and they show none of those tells. And you hear them being sociopaths and people who have no regard for human emotion. They basically don't have that guilt factor in their, in their psyche, so they're not oh, showing God. that discomfort. So it makes it very, very difficult to interview them. And people criticize law enforcement. Say, you got that guy in custody, you talked to him on the side of the road, and you let him go. Well, that's because all of the telltale things the officer was looking for were not present. Well, sometimes do they ever have like a prepared lie? Some of these, some of these criminals, like I know I'm going to get caught, so I, I'm I'm ready with my story, and I hope they believe it. If they've been doing it long enough, they probably yeah, it happens all the time. <laughs> it didn't work for Timothy McVeigh though. It's a small example, right. but Timothy McVeigh got stopped driving away from one of the worst domestic bombings in U.S. history because he had a a a bad tag on his car. And that officer who stopped him, uh, you know, all people talk about traffic stops are ridiculous and they're only for the purposes of money. Well, that cop that stopped him and said his story didn't make sense and took him into custody over a bad tag wound up catching a perpetrator that might have disappeared into history and been the next D.B. Cooper. Well, don't you get worried sometimes when you you have to stop something? You have to be careful that the person doesn't have a gun in the car? That would scare me. That's every time. You have no idea who you're stopping. Quite frankly, single time, no matter what it's for. Yeah, and and the problem is the car is just as the car is just as or more dangerous because it doesn't take much training to hit the gas pedal and drive over an officer. Yep. That's what I'm. I know, and we know. So that's it. Before I forget, tomorrow, I was supposed to do um, a, a broadcast on Monday, but because of the other reason why I told you before, uh, yeah, I didn't do it. Tomorrow uh, we have the author of Things That Last Forever, and on Tuesday, somebody we all love and know, John Land. He picked up the Capitol Crime Murders, Margaret Truman Murders, Murder on the Metro, and on the 18th, something really wild, uh, The Bartender's Guide to Murder. And at the end of each one, for people that like to drink, not me, there's an there's a exotic drink. And on the 24, 22nd, uh, Alan Jandransky, forgiving Stephen Redmond. And here goes the big one. On the 24th to end uh, February, Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child, The Scorpion's Tale, will be on my broadcast. I am so excited. I, I'm like honored and excited, seriously. So, next question. Do you ever have to, did you ever have to go to court 
about one of these cases? And how does um, that must have been difficult in order to get questions about a murder case or anything? Did you ever have to go to court and testify? I was in court all the time. Every time you have a, a especially a career criminal, and his only option is to fight the case, he's going to go to a jury trial because um, mm. that, that's his only chance. So yeah, we, I was in court quite a bit. Yep, same here. That, that 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 must be difficult, though. Uh, the lawyers have their own perception of what they want you to say, and what you don't want to say, what you don't want you to say. That that often wonders. But you, if you tell the truth, it doesn't really matter. Well, I guess. that's the the other misconception that you hear. It, you know, I've taught in the academy for years, and it sounds mm-hmm. like these gentlemen have have done the same. You know, law enforcement officers receive a lot of training in how to testify. And what to expect yeah. in court. You know, we would never throw uh, officers into a situation where we didn't tell them everything from how to prepare to how mm-hmm. to behave in a courtroom. And, you know, when I was a prosecutor, people would say, well, I don't know why you have to tell people how to behave in a courtroom. Well, the first time you see people show up in shorts and a T-shirt and flip-flops, clearly they weren't told how to behave in a courtroom. But, you know, there's a certain amount of courtroom demeanor that's necessary, um, knowing what to do when someone objects, how to speak to a jury, knowing when to come down and explain things, um, you know, knowing that you have to you have to stop. The gentlemen on here are going to laugh. You can't speak in ten codes. Uh, you know, you actually have to use words because um, the jury may not have any background in law enforcement, or worse, the only experience they may have in law enforcement is what they saw on TV last night. And, you know, just imagine explaining things to a jury so far as blood spatter evidence and why you can interpret that. Um, And, you know, famously, um, I think it was the O.J. Simpson trial, um, but, you know, one of the jurors was asked about DNA evidence and said it was just too confusing. We just we couldn't get through it. Uh, You know, the officer starts that that explanation starts with the officer. And a very basic one, is, and the, the new officers get this messed up in court all the time, is when you're asked a question, you, you pause and let the prosecutor have a chance to object. If you jump out and answer something too soon, then uh, you could uh, mess up a case. So you got to give the, uh, the prosecutor a chance to object. Can the jurors ask questions? Yes. No. Yes. Not, not, to the, not to the witnesses. No. They no, but they can ask the judge. judge. They, they, they can have notepads. The they, they, they write them down on notepads and pass it to the judge, and the judge will decide whether or not the question is uh, valid. Yeah, while they're deliberating, they can do that. Now, it's interesting. In the United States, they can ask. They cannot ask questions, um, but that's not the case in other countries, and it's kind of interesting. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things lawyers do after you try a case is you always – if you have any common sense, uh, you always talk to the jurors. Now, some of them won't talk to you, but some of them will. And you just say, hey, you know, Bruce, I, 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 what did you think of Mrs. So-and-so as a witness? Or what did you think about the way we presented that evidence? Or, you know, uh, David, we, sh- we had a chart. Did you think that chart was, was helpful? And you get that feedback. And I've never interviewed a jury when we didn't have someone say, man, I really wanted to ask that guy a question when he was on the stand. So, you know, if they're paying attention, they're chomping at the bit to try to get to information. And that's the, that's the, that's one of the reasons I like writing courtroom scenes because I've seen both sides of that. And I know that the jury's on edge just as much as everyone else. What happens if the jury doesn't understand? I mean, do they ever pick a jury that perfectly like we want to make sure that they're not going to get this or they're just going to side with, Whichever side they want them to side on, 
I mean, they have to pick people that are intelligent and understand. Did you ever find that some of the jurors sit there and they're in total fog? Well, hopefully the juries can right pick now. better than that. I mean, both sides both sides have, have say in, in who actually gets yeah. to sit on the jury. They all, they all get so many, you know, uh, picks on that. So you, you want people that actually are uh, hopefully not biased about anything that you're going to present to them and, um, you know, have the, intelli- the uh, fortitude intelligent-wise to be able to comprehend what it is you're going to give them. And a lot of that's about the way it's presented as well. You have to set the groundwork give the background for your witnesses when they take the stand to explain in layman's terms what it is that they're talking about. That's very true. You know, I, I, I teach up at the uh, National Forensic Academy occasionally on, uh, for the folks that are going through, you know, where the body form is and people that are going through that certification. And it's really hard because their world, you were talking about how science has changed. Their world uh, is all about science. So, when they're stepping up, you know, they're not saying, oh, I lifted a fingerprint and like they are on TV and here it is. And, you know, the back, the, you know, the person confesses and then they get sentenced. You know, they're explaining a lot of chemical analysis to a jury. And if it's not done properly, you know, it goes, it, it's not just that it goes over their head. They could be skeptical about it. And in our jury system, the jury is the sole judge of the credibility of a witness. So you can have a witness who testifies about whatever you want them to testify about, but if the jury doesn't find them credible, they are free. It's a jury charge. They are free to disregard any or all of their testimony. But haven't they already heard it, though? They've heard it, I mean, but, know. you know, you people heard a lot of things from me during this, but they may disregard some of it. That, 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 that's amazing. What happens when they, the case goes to the jury? Are they allowed to ask questions? Are they allowed to um, ask something about the testimony? Are they allowed to have something clarified? A lot they of can, times they'll ask for a readback. Yeah. Readback or, or maybe get to see again. something. Yeah, yeah, they can ask to see evidence again. And, and as somebody pointed out, I, I think it was Bruce pointed out that they can send a letter to the judge and say, hey, we have a question about the law or or we would like to see the video again or – you know, we, we'd like to uh, – they have the evidence back there, or you know, but they may say we have a question about this evidence. Then the judge has a tough call because the judge has to decide whether they come in and either recharge them on the law or allow them to watch um, a video again. Um, or if there's a question that means that they're really not getting it, it's a real tough thing for both sides because people bring cases to juries because mm-hmm. they can't come to resolutions, whether they're, it's a murder case or a civil case. And it's very frustrating for both sides when the the jury is confused because it's it means that there's a disconnect. No, I do know about that. That's 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 for sure, without a doubt. When I, I know that um, when they before you before um, somebody is in court or the, the defendant or the other people or the uh, criminal or the or the victim or uh, the criminal, whatever, um, they have to have a deposition, right? And the deposition is supposed to be, does that go to the uh, both lawyers? That's supposed to go to both lawyers, but that doesn't go to the jury, right? They don't get a copy of, of, what they, of the deposition. Do they depose the witnesses before? In civil cases, they, have- they do, but in criminal cases, depositions prior to trial are pretty rare. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never heard of I one. Got- no. Well, I, I remember I was in a fatal car accident when, a long time ago, 
when I was a kid. If it was civil, uh, if it was a civil case, they're almost always yeah. deposed. Now, in a criminal case, they would have to be. A lot of times, it's done by agreement of counsel. Um, somebody mm. is ill or somebody is out of the country, and they're going to take their deposition for use at the trial. Um, but they're generally uh, frowned upon in criminal cases because of the confrontation clause in the United States Constitution. And what happens if somebody actually, do they ever have a case where, the, uh, not the defendant, but the person that's being prosecuted ever disappears? Where they just don't show up and somehow they escape? All the time, and a bunch of warrants issued for it. Yeah. How did, yeah, what I'm did trying they to get witnesses that? to trials as hard. Well, that's we issue scary. warrants, obviously, if they don't show up and they've been subpoenaed to testify. But you've still got to get them. Right. Well, what happens? Do they ever try to uh, get out of the country or drive to Canada or get somewhere else? Or have somebody drive them somewhere else or fly them somewhere else? I'm just, like well, I said, I watch too much television. In Southern California, they, they run across the border to Mexico. And then we have a good liaison with the, with the Mexican police, and um, they track them down, and then there's an extradition. And then, then that, that's hopeful. And going out of the country, it's interesting. People always talk about it, and we hear all these books about somebody uh, being extradited from a foreign country, and it makes Mm -hmm. for good television. But, you know, um, Eric Robert Rudolph hid in plain sight um, in a national national, uh, forest uh, for years, and he was the Olympic Park bomber. And, you know, clearly people saw him. He was actually found behind a shopping center dumpster diving. Uh, but he had been on the run for years. So it's not hard for people to run, even in our modern day um, of electronics and things. And people do. People hide in plain sight all the time. Wasn't Whitey Bulger on a lamb for a long time? They found him in Santa Monica with a bunch of money in the wall, a bunch of cash. Living right out in the open. Yeah, I forget where he was, but you're right. It was Whitey Bulger that, uh, and God, he was wanted by he was wanted by the feds. He was wanted by the the folks up there in uh, in the Northeast. Right. Yeah, we had he a, was we had just walking around in Santa Monica. Nobody knows. Yeah. As far as what you happens if somebody's hiding in plain sight and they just don't look the same? They change their appearance, and you just no, nobody sees them. That's that's scary. Like I said, well, I, I, I review a lot. <laughs> the DNA and prints will be the same. So yeah, that's true. Yeah. What's the What's the famous saying? Uh, you know, you may be fine, but your hands are going to jail. Um, yeah. You know, the, the the interesting thing that I'll tell you about that you talked about technology. I was actually talking to yeah. somebody the other day about this. Um, how facial recognition software is probably going to change that. You know, yeah. the old uh, spy mm. novel where the person. You know, the woman changes the color of her hair or the guy shaves his head bald and walks out while thousands of people are looking for him. Well, now the cameras you can buy from Costco can be programmed to do facial recognition. And Mm. uh, that that may be uh, the thing of Hollywood legends uh, very shortly. Well, when I first started, they were still doing you arrest somebody and you take them to jail and they would do a pen print card, roll their fingerprint. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and, and a couple mm-hmm. of times, I think it was actually three times, I arrested a guy for drunk driving, and then the watch commander come to me a few months later because it would take three or six months to come back, and they'd say, hey, that guy had a murder warrant. And those guys were just slipping through the cracks all the time. And now yeah, they have yeah. live scan, and that's and that shut, them, that shut all that down. I mean, people are instantly caught when you take them into the jail now. 
Yeah, one of the so urban legends when I first started policing, so it probably mm. happened in the mid-'70s, was a guy that was arrested as a safe burglar. Very, very rare in law enforcement to catch a safe burglar. Um, but the jail basically would not release him until they could ID him because they couldn't bond him out. And it took like 30 days to ID this guy because his prints had to uh, be sent to right. the, the state and then also sent right. to the FBI to try to – you know, to try to ID them. Uh, so, yeah, that that's changed. You know, you, it's, it's with, you can get instant evolving. fingerprint. Yeah, well, just well, I'm I doing left, something in, um, in May with people, if I can remember where they are. No. Um, May 24th, we're talking about how do you use your real-life experience when you write. So I know you guys have stuff coming out. So how do you use your real-life experience in your, in your series that are coming out? Because we have about five minutes. Well, I, I try to take every, everything but the real cases. I don't, I don't write about cases that I actually work. So the cases in my books are, are uh, fictional. But the incidents and, and the interactions around those cases are, uh, I draw heavily on experience from when I worked in the police department. A lot of the politics, a lot of the stresses, mm-hmm. a lot of the arguments, uh, that kind of stuff is all in there. I know. That's why I love reading your stuff. You know, one of the things that I try to draw on is experiences to humanize police, because right now we need so much of that. So, you know, as I've told people, I, I had a, a cop that I worked with who used to go home and paint at night. Probably the last thing anybody would expect uh, a cop would mm-hmm. do after a tough day is go home and do oil paintings. Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, those are the real experiences you try to bring up. Um, you know, the officers that make an arrest and then go home and are so upset at what they had to see um, you know, I have several friends right now that are actively involved in pursuing uh, child pornography and sex tra- trafficking perpetrators. Uh, you know, we just tragically lost two FBI agents to uh, a perpetrator uh, involved in that. And people tend to look at that as a nonviolent crime. It's incredibly violent. It's like the drug trade. Everything surrounding it is violent. So telling the stories of those officers, even though you're fictionalizing the crimes you're using, um, it makes for better characters, and one of the reasons it makes for better characters is these are real people. Yeah, I know it is, but every, everything you guys write, I mean, okay, David, I have to tell you, I just got an email from somebody that's said that she's going to send me your last, your next book, your last book. I just want you to know. <laughs> she, oh, she's going to send you the next book? She, Mary just emailed me, and I said, I'm just sending her my address, oh. and she said she's sending me Ruthless. Uh, okay. What can I say? Okay, so the, I, I can't wait to get it. I'm going to add it to my pile of a, of a million books out there. But I don't know about you guys, but book mail hasn't been bringing a lot of stuff. And um, the last couple of weeks I didn't get any, and today I got five. So I was I was really excited. I got Mark Greeny's book and J.D. Robb and a whole bunch of others that I had no idea I was getting. It's great. So where can everybody find out about all of you and what's next? She, and your wife said that she's going to send me anything I don't have. <laughs> okay. I'm going um, to be very busy. I can see it. You can find it. <laughs> my books on my website, David at, uh, at davidputnambooks.com. That's my, my email. You can find mine at bluelinelawyer.com or lancelarussobooks.com. And I have a serial novel coming out that will be available for free to people download. It will be one every other month. It will be a series about my character, Johnny Till, getting involved in an officer-involved shooting in a rather hostile jurisdiction. I love that, Johnny Till. Are you coming out with one in print that I could read? Because friend doesn't read the digital ever, ever. Absolutely. We have a sequel that's being edited right now. 
When is it coming out? Because that's important. I have to know to put you in my schedule here. <laughs> Probably within the next uh, five or six months. Just let David tell me. You got the best publicist. Let me tell you. And Bruce, what's next for you? Um, you can find out about my books at brucerobertcoffin.com, and uh, I am currently working on the fifth Detective Byron novel, and uh, also some standalones. I also have uh, a couple of short stories coming out in anthologies, including a Jimmy oh, Buffett-themed anthology that, that comes out on the 22nd from Down and Out Books, and um, I'm excited about that. That's actually pretty cool. It's called The Great Filling Station uh, Holdup. That sounds interesting, and I'm very excited. I just signed with Atmosphere Press. I didn't tell anybody. And they are doing my next book. And Congratulations. It's, it's a miracle. I hope they like it. Population Zero, The World Without People. That's the title. And I created wow. worlds with, yeah, worlds with no people. Um, one, of, one of your favorite authors did read it, and he said it was really good, and he gave me some suggestions to make it better. So I'm waiting for the editor to call me, either later today or one of the days this week, <laughs> to tell me how to fix it. But I got really excited. I go, oh, my God, a real independent publishing company thinks that my work is good. So I am excited. But thank you so much. This is really interesting. And that was a lot of fun. Bef- yeah, I, this this is fun. Um, before I forget, and I always say this at, at the end of every show, you know, this virus is horrible. And the simplest thing is when you go out, all I ask is that you wear a mask and protect yourself and protect me and social distance and stay safe. So one small ask, please wear a mask. I say that at the end of my show because there are so many people out there that don't get it. So everybody stay safe. And whenever you have a new book coming out, let me know a couple of months before so I can put you in my interview schedule. That sounds great, gentlemen. Great meeting you. Thank you. Thank Thank you you very much. Great talking with you guys. Everybody have a great day and bye.